Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And usually on the show, we spend an hour focusing on a particular theme. Uh, last week was a different drummer, for example. The week before was Global DC. Well, this week we're doing away with all that and bringing you one of our wild cards shows. We'll be bringing you a little bit of everything today, like a new play that uses a bit of magic to explore schoolyard bullying. Where is the line between human and inhuman? Where is the line between a boy and a beast? And a summer camp where it's not so much capture the flag, but rather code it. You use certain icons to say, like, okay, when you click these buttons on the keyboard, it will move like this. We'll also head out to the beach to visit a seaside attraction brimming with memories. There's so many things that go on, and our modern lives are getting more global. It's kind of nice to have also this little slice of small-town America. But first, we'll zoom back a week to July 4th when Washington, D.C. hosted its annual Independence Day celebration, a capital fourth. And the festivities kicked off with this. The National Symphony Orchestra, the U.S. Army Herald Trumpets, the Joint Armed Forces Chorus, and the Choral Arts Society of Washington performing our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. This year marks the 200th anniversary of the song, which Maryland native Francis Scott Key so famously composed the night British warships bombed Baltimore's Fort McHenry. But what isn't so famous is something that sounds uncannily like the defense of Fort McHenry, as the song was originally called. That he their inspire and patron would be when the censor arrived from the jolly old Grecian. (laughs) (laughs) What you're hearing me um, attempt to sing is the Anacreontic song, an old English drinking tune to which, so the story goes, Francis Scott Key penned his legendary lyrics. And my partner in musical crime is a Middleburg, Virginia resident who knows all about Frank, as friends and family called him. My name is Mark Leibson. I'm a historian and journalist and author. My eighth book just came out. It's called What So Proudly We Hailed Francis Scott Key, A Life. And it's the first biography of Francis Scott Key in over 75 years. Mark and I met up in Georgetown in a lovely brick-paved grove of trees known as Francis Scott Key Park. Which is, as you're coming over the Key Bridge, to your right, if you're heading towards downtown on M Street. And it's not too far from where Key and his family lived from about 1805 to 1830. The government purchased the home in 1930, but with so many new freeways coming in, they eventually took it apart. And the idea was they were going to rebuild it. So they saved the logs and the bricks underneath the bridge, but it disappeared. All the stuff disappeared. And there's this rumor, people will swear to you that Francis Scott Key's house, his timbers or bricks are underneath Key Bridge. No, no. But enough about the house. Let's go back to that song, the one that sounds suspiciously like what in 1931 would become our country's national anthem. So let's hear the title and then let's hear the lyrics. Yeah, the Anacreontic song. To Anacreon in heaven where he sat in full glee, 
a few sons of harmony sent a petition. That the Anacreontic song was quite the popular ditty. From colonial days right up until the time of the War of 1812. And Leibson says Key wedded his lyrics to that well-known tune. And part of the reason he didn't write his own melody might have been, well, Francis Scott Key's nickname could have been Francis Scott off key. It goes to an interview that a reporter had with one of his grandchildren in the 1870s. And she said, we considered our grandfather unmusical, which I think might have meant tone deaf. And so think of the irony, the song that more Americans know the words to than any other song except Happy Birthday, right? It was written by a man who was unmusical and may have been tone deaf. But that's not the only thing that might surprise you about Francis Scott Key. As Mark Leapson points out, he was a religious man, a lawyer, and a guy who didn't exactly seek the spotlight. He rarely, if ever, talked about writing that song. Um, he only spoke in public once about it, and that was 20 years later. So he never was a congressman, a senator. He argued over 100 cases before the Supreme Court. So he was an important figure in the early republic. Uh, but um, he was a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. So Key wasn't just the author of the words to what is now a national anthem. You mentioned he was also a lawyer. Um, he was also uh, quite a religious man. And also he eventually got into politics, That's although right. you said for much of his life he wasn't into politics, and a big political issue of his day was slavery. Right. Now, from what you write in your book, he had interesting views on slavery. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah. You know, when you talk about an important figure in the early republic and an influential figure, who, which Key was, you can't get away from the slavery issue. And in fact, it was an important issue in his life from the day he was born till the day he died. He came from a big Maryland slave-owning family. He owned slaves. On the other hand, he was adamantly against slave trafficking. You know, slave trafficking was made illegal in 1808, even though slavery was still legal in the United States. And he thought that was an, an evil. He also had a deserved reputation in Washington for representing free blacks and slaves for free in the courts. And he was one of the top lawyers in town, and he took all the cases for any free black or slave who needed something, either criminal or civil. On the other hand, he was a founding member of the American Colonization Society in 1816. It was formed here in Washington, D.C., and it was formed to send free blacks, only free blacks, not slaves, to a colony in Africa that would become the nation of Liberia. It was a very controversial endeavor. Key and others who supported it said that it would help eventually end slavery. It would also end slave trafficking. But it was very kind. The abolitionists hated the whole idea of colonization. African Americans didn't really go for it in a big way. By the time colonization ended, they had sent only about 15,000 free blacks to Africa. There was a lot of trouble in Liberia. In the beginning, it finally sort of worked. Um, but you have to remember that when it started, there were about a million slaves in the country. When the Civil War started, there were four million. So it was really a drop in the bucket, this 15,000. And like I said, Key has a mixed issue on it. You know, if you read his pronouncements on slave trafficking, he would sound like an abolitionist. He talked about how evil it was. And yet he was not pro-abolition. Oh, no, he was anti-abolition. Abolitionists were the radicals. And um, he was a very conservative man in every form of the word, politically, yes, but socially. He was a very, very religious man. He was a very pious individual. He thought about going into the Episcopal priesthood very seriously. But he wrote in a letter that he had a growing family and he really didn't think he could support them. He wound up having 11 children. But he was sort of like a lay minister. He visited the sick and gave counseling. And he actually baptized a child once 
in an emergency situation, yeah. Late at night, he was working, and a couple banged on the door, and they said they had a baby who was dying, and they wanted to get him baptized, and they knew they couldn't find the minister. And he said, oh, okay, and he baptized the child, but the child survived. And he was actually castigated by the Episcopal Church for doing that, but he stood by his guns and said, you know, what could I do, these people? So he was a, a part of the fabric of, of Georgetown. He also helped start Christ Church in Georgetown, too. And so, yeah, I think it's a Georgetown, Washington story that people don't know. Mark Leapson is author of the new book, What So Proudly We Hailed, Francis Scott Key, A Life. Want to try your hand at singing the anacreontic song? We have the lyrics on our website, metroconnection.org. To Anacreon in Herb, where he sat in for glee, a few songs of harmony spelled a petition that he her inspired patron would be. When this answer arrived from the jolly old so as we just heard, Francis Scott Key probably wasn't much of a singer. But the woman we'll hear about next has a voice people have described as ethereal and celestial. Her name is Grace Griffith, and for years she was a fixture in the region's Celtic and folk music scenes. More than a decade ago, she was diagnosed with an illness that would change her life forever. Lauren Ober met with Griffith's longtime producer and collaborator Chris Biondo and brings us this story. Every couple of months over the course of two years, Grace Griffith would get into her car and drive from her home in Akakeek, Maryland, to Chris Biondo's recording studio in Kensington. The folk singer was headed there to lay down some tracks for a new album. The 40-mile drive didn't take long, but on some days it felt interminable. I think that she really had a lot of things to overcome just to get in a car and come here. See, Griffith has Parkinson's disease an illness that makes it hard, even impossible, for the brain and body to communicate. Here's singer Linda Ronstadt describing the illness to reporter Dan Rather in a 2013 interview. Ronstadt announced she had the disease last year and hasn't sung publicly since 2009. With Parkinson's disease, there's nothing wrong with the muscle, but there's no phone lines between your brain and the muscle, so you can't can't get the message to work. So no matter if you're a Grammy-winning superstar like Ronstadt or a fixture in the local Celtic and folk music scene like Griffith, trying to sing with Parkinson's is brutal. But that didn't stop Griffith from finishing her latest record, which she titled Passing Through. The album comes out next week. It took a lot of courage to do what she did. I would imagine that it was painful to have to drive here, and it's painful not to take the medicine, and it's painful to sit in a room and have somebody to tell you to sing something over and over and over again, and during the process have deterioration of your health happen. Griffith grew up in a family of 10 on a farm in Waldorf. She went to school to become a physical therapist, but music was always her true passion. Over the years, she landed gigs around the region and came to be known for her seraphic voice, as one local music critic called it. Biondo, who produced three of Griffith's albums, has his own thoughts on her voice. I would describe her voice as very smooth, very soft, very expressive, uh, very loving. That's how I would describe her singing. But with the onset of Parkinson's 16 years ago, Griffith has had to adjust her approach to the craft. As her health deteriorated, singing became more difficult. But she and Biondo found a workaround. The Parkinson's treatment 
is based upon taking medications that cause your muscles to do things that they don't normally do because I believe that if she didn't take this medicine, she'll shake. One of the hallmarks of the disease is uncontrollable tremors. Griffith's cocktails of medications help prevent that, but... What happens is if she doesn't take the medicine, she actually can sing. Does that make any sense? Actually, her, her muscles in her face start to loosen up and she can actually sing for an hour or so until she can no longer tolerate not taking the medicine. Because of her illness, Griffith didn't know if she had another album left in her. But with the help of Biondo and co-producers Lenny Williams and Marcy Markser, as well as a whole host of musicians who donated their time and talents, Passing Through came together. But what initially began as a quiet, reflective a cappella album turned into something much more. We have pretty big production numbers and we have pretty scaled-down production numbers. There's a couple of a cappella things with her friends and then there's just a you know her and guitar and her and harp that kind of thing the first track on the album bridget's shield is one of the big production numbers the lyrics seem particularly prophetic started throwing stuff in there and before you knew it was like a ton of instruments there's percussion bass fiddle cello one of the quieter numbers down by the sally gardens is a spare little tune based on a william butler yates poem just vocals and a harp it's hard not to be moved by griffith's yearning voice down by the sally garden my love and I did meet. Grace is going for the throat. She's trying to stir stir people's emotions. And I, I get that because that's that's a form of art and I like that. Griffith's condition has worsened since she began recording the album. She now lives in a nursing home not far from Biondo. But she's still in an intensive speech therapy program designed for people with Parkinson's. And she's still singing every day. She seems to be pretty determined to hang in there and to keep making music. So I, would, I wouldn't bet against her. Neither would we. I'm Lauren Ober. On July 20th, Friends of Grace Griffith will host a tribute concert for her at the Birchmere in Alexandria. Proceeds from the show will go toward Griffith's treatment. You can learn more about that show on our website, metroconnection.org. To the break. If they decide to issue a final permit for this project, there will be lawsuits. The fight over fracking heats up in a Maryland town. That and more is just ahead as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. We're stepping aside from our usual theme this week and bringing you one of our Wild Cards shows. And so far, we've been on kind of a musical bent with the little-known tale of the man who wrote one of our nation's most famous songs and the story of a local musician struggling through illness to finish her final album. 
But now we're going to focus on something completely different. Energy and a protest rally planned for this Sunday in front of the U.S. Capitol. At issue is what's become a very hot topic in the environmental world, fracking, a process where you pump water, sand, and other materials into the ground at an extremely high pressure so you can fracture shale rocks and release the oil and natural gas inside. And someone who's been exploring that issue quite a bit is WAMU's environment reporter, Jonathan Wilson, who joins me in the studio now. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Rebecca. All right, so let's talk about this protest scheduled for Sunday. Organizers are calling it the Rally to Stop Fracked Gas Exports, Cove Point, and Beyond. Tell us about Cove Point. Well, sure. So Cove Point is a liquefied natural gas, or LNG, import facility just outside Lusby, Maryland, in Calvert County. This facility is owned and operated by Dominion, one of the nation's biggest energy producers and transporters. Dominion wants to turn Cove Point into an export facility to send some of the surplus natural gas here in the States to places like India and Japan. Okay, I remember you reported on that issue uh, last fall. Mm -hmm. So what has happened since then? Well, back then, opponents of the plan were urging Maryland's Public Service Commission to put a stop to the project. Opponents believe it will be a huge new source of pollution in Maryland, with most of the benefits going to Dominion. Now, in May, the Public Service Commission gave Dominion approval with some caveats. The commission is forcing Dominion to donate $48 million to the state to help promote renewable energy and provide low-income energy assistance. Still, that approval did not make environmental groups happy. They would have rather they just rejected the plan. Here is Mike Tidwell, executive director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. We think that the safety concerns of the people in Calvert County are not worth $48 million. We think the climate harm that this will do to the state and to the planet is not worth $48 million. So there's enormous regret over the uh, flawed decision, in our view, uh, from the Maryland Public Service Commission. So if the Cove Point project is moving forward, is there really anything the critics can do to change that? Well, that's what this weekend's protest is all about. Now, final permitting for this $3.8 billion project lies in the hands of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. That's called FERC. That's where opponents are targeting their outrage right now. They say that FERC is just a rubber stamp for the oil and gas industry and that the entire process hasn't been transparent or stringent enough. I talked with Mike Frederick, the vice president of operations at Dominion Cove Point. He, not surprisingly, disputes that characterization. I mean, we're, we're 20, 20 plus thousand pages of information into the FERC docket. For a project like this, there should be a complete and thorough review. FERC's been doing that. It's taken a little longer than we'd like, probably. But the reality is we want it to be done correctly, and they're doing it correctly. But Rebecca, even if FERC grants final approval, we could be far away from Cove Point actually getting constructed. Mike Tidwell with Chesapeake Climate Action Network again told me unequivocally that opponents believe this approval process has been illegal and lawsuits are already in the works. Well, speaking of illegal, I mean, talking about fracking, isn't it illegal in Maryland? Well, that's right. There are lots of unknowns and plenty of disagreement over fracking's effect on the environment and public health. So right now, Cove Point would simply be the export location for gas drilled in 
places where it's legal right now, West Virginia and Pennsylvania. But a small part of the Marcellus Shale, that's the underground rock formation that holds all the natural gas in this area, is underneath western Maryland. And for the past three years or so, a commission appointed by Governor Martin O'Malley has been charged with studying the possibility of allowing shale gas drilling, fracking, in Maryland. That commission is expected to deliver its final recommendation in October. Now, earlier this year, some members of that commission came out and criticized the entire process, and they continue to complain that they might need more time to consider public health studies, including one that was just handed to them at the end of June. Anne Bristow with the Savage River Watershed Association. She's one of those commission members who's been raising concerns. If the health study really could use more time, as has been communicated to us, um, if it feels like we're crunching all these studies together, we're at least two months behind the projected schedule that was given us in April for what we consider in meetings. So if there's a lot to be considered, why the rush? And we don't have an answer to that. Now, Rebecca, we should point out that not everyone is a fan of Bristow criticizing the process before it's actually complete. Here's Drew Cobbs with the Maryland Petroleum Council. If after the fact they want to raise concerns, that's one thing. But to try to, I think, sort of subvert the process as it goes on, I really think it is is terrible. You know, I think in the end they probably will recommend going forward with, with fracking in Maryland with all sorts of safeguards. And based on what I've seen and where things stand right now, Maryland will by far have the strictest and tightest uh, regulations in place if we do go forward with fracking. Andrew Cobbs thinks that the state will actually go forward with fracking. He does. He wouldn't say if he thought the commission would actually deliver its verdict before the state gets a new governor. But that's the way he thinks the commission is leaning. And he's been watching this closely. He also said the state is a few years away still from real drilling because, once again, he believes lawsuits will come from environmental groups if that decision is indeed made. Now, interestingly, he also says it's not even clear who will want to drill in Maryland. He says Maryland's deposit is mostly dry gas and not wet gas. It's a bit technical, but dry gas is not worth as much as wet gas. And he says if Maryland does allow fracking, its regulations could also be so strict that those two factors will make it not worth it for these companies to drill in Maryland. Well, Jonathan Wilson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Anytime, Rebecca. How do you feel about fracking or the Cove Point Project in Maryland? Tell us your thoughts. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. We'll return to D.C. now for our series, Beating the Odds. Every year, special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza meets remarkable high school students who manage to succeed in spite of overwhelming challenges. This week, she introduces us to a recent graduate of Thurgood Marshall Public Charter School in southeast Washington, a young man who's been no stranger to tragedy. 17-year-old Donovan Blackman says his height, 6 feet 4 inches, comes from his mother and his laid-back, cheerful manner from his father. His love of all things sports is from both of them. Actually, my father and my mother met through bowling. So they took me out. I go bowling with them all the time. He was my coach in almost every sport I did, whether it was swimming or basketball. They were big Redskins fans. They just liked to go out and have fun. Donovan had older step-siblings who were already grown up, 
so he was extremely close to his parents. His mother and father didn't live together, but were still close. He felt extremely lucky to have both of them in his life. I was sort of like glued to him. I have a bunch of friends that don't have their father in their life or raised by a single mother or a single father and how hard it is sometimes. Having parents is a great thing, so for me, just to get the opportunity to spend time with my mother and my father and enjoy being around them that much, I thought it was amazing. When he was in the eighth grade, he was playing outside with friends. It was about 10 o'clock. I had curfew because my grandmother didn't want me outside. So I went to the house, started eating, and then my father's friend had called the house phone and said that they were on the way to the hospital because my father said he was having chest pains. Donovan's father was in his early 40s. I just started crying even before I even knew what happened. And I was crying, and I was trying to eat my food at the same time, and I started choking on my salad because I was crying so hard. And then that's when the doctor finally said that my father had suffered from a heart attack and actually died in the car before he even got to the hospital. It was hard to accept he could no longer spend time with his dad whenever he wanted. It seemed almost like a dream, almost. Me and my father talked about everything. If I had problems in school, I talked to him about it. If I had problems with defending myself from bullies or whatever, I talked to him about that. Girls, money issues. We could even have competitions and playing the game like the Xbox. He was my father, but he felt more so like my, my best friend. Donovan was angry with the world and started acting out in school. Sometimes he couldn't help crying softly in class. He went for months of grief counseling that ended with a camp for children whose parents had died. I'd never been to a camp before. It was filled with a bunch of other kids from the age of four to the age of 17. At the end of the camp, all the children built little sailboats and attached photos of their parents. And we put it in this river, and you just let it sail. And then when they say your name on the announcer, and they say your parents that you're remembering, you just let your... Your anger, your frustration go along with the ship, but you keep your memories. It just felt good compared to being around people that went to my school who couldn't understand what I was going through. Donovan finally felt less alone. He moved in with his mother, and they would look at pictures of his father and talk about old memories. He started high school, and everything started to look a little bit better. Donovan started hanging out even more with his mother. She used to work at Safeway, so now I even come up to Safeway, watch her work, or we just go to a park or just go bowling. Her chicken was like the best chicken I ever had in my life because she marinated with some special stuff. She never told me what it was, but it was just so good. So every time I would come over there and talk to her, I was like, Mom, can you make some chicken? And she was like, yes, I got you. Then one evening, exactly one year and one month after his father's death, Donovan came home from school thinking about the laser tag party his mother had planned for him. I walked in the door, my grandmother, my aunt, and my other aunt was sitting in the living room. And I was all happy coming from school because my birthday was coming up. And I knew from the moment I walked in the house the sun was up. And then that's when they explained that my mother was found unconscious in her apartment because she had an aneurysm, basically like a, a blood clot in your brain. He prayed for a positive outcome. I started crying that night, went to sleep, just thinking like, I don't want to go through the same thing that I went through with my father, just crying, asking God, please don't take my mother. Donovan's mother died the next day. It seemed like almost overnight he went from a child whose two parents doted on him to one of the almost 6,000 children in D.C. who were being raised by their grandparents. Donovan started to attend church regularly. 
I learned that God has a time when he wants to take people. So I started to believe that him taking my parents maybe was a part of his plan for me to do something great in the future. School also became a refuge. I started doing better academically. And I was like, wow, I made honor roll, which I haven't made honor roll since the seventh grade. He didn't tell classmates both his parents had died. He didn't want to be different. Because every time I tell somebody, they, well, the girls always start crying. Then the boys always be like, oh, my bad, sorry to hear that. Like, okay, I know I had some stuff happen to me, but I'm still moving forward. I feel like I'm a kid just like everybody else. Donovan is gentle and calm, but he says applying to colleges was stressful. When it comes to deadlines and projects, nobody reminded me. My grandmother, she didn't really know what was going on in school. I would come home and try to explain stuff to her. She didn't know. So it was basically just me. That was it. I don't have parents to rely on because I don't have the money to fail and then having to go to another semester. So I realized that if I'm messing up in class, it's my responsibility to go to the professor and talk to him or her and realize what I'm doing wrong and how to fix my grade and just do the work myself. Donovan says he has plenty of extended family support, but on his graduation day, he thought about his parents a lot, how his mother would have cried and how his father would probably have cried as well, even as they both burst with pride. He says they were his main motivation. I can't fail in high school because I... I know it would disappoint them because I said I made a promise with them that I was going to go to college. And he's going to keep that promise. Donovan is going to St. John's University in New York to study sports management. And he's going to take along a poster he made after his father died to hang over his bed there. It's a poster he's looked at every day for years. It reads, I can do it. I'm Kavita Kadusa. Kristen Sorensen contributed to this report. Partial support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week on Door to Door, we'll visit Holmes Run Acres in Fairfax County, Virginia, and the Langdon neighborhood of Northeast D.C. My name is Vivian Smith, and I'm 88 years old, and I've lived in Holmes Run Acres since 1954. There's some 360 houses, borders right on the Beltway. Now we have the Mosaic and the Murrayfield development out there, and townhouses going up there. We're near Annandale. Fairfax Hospital is very close. And so we're sort of in the center of an area that then was considered to be way out, but now it's quite close to town. We moved here thinking we probably wouldn't stay that long. But we found out there were some things that we really liked about the neighborhood. The architecture, for one thing, and the natural setting. The houses are built into the, into the lay of the land. The neighborhood is now very mixed ages, which I like. At first, it was people who, most of them worked for the federal government, and they worked downtown. And uh, now it's quite mixed in ages, which we like. And I feel we're still accepted and able to contribute. And that makes us feel very good about ourselves. And we also like the feeling of a lot of young children playing around and hearing them laughing and playing. 
I like the way the houses feel. I like the openness. I like to look out my windows and see the trees and the nature. It's as much like being as a small town as we can find around a metropolitan area and still have the sophistication of a city. My name is Michael Kiefer. I am 40 years old and I live in the Langdon community of Woodridge in Northeast Washington, D.C. The community is probably most likely defined, I would say, from Montana Avenue all the way over to Eastern Avenue and from south of Rhode Island Avenue down to New York Avenue. The rail line that sort of runs through the community had originated, I believe, during the Civil War time, and it was a corridor during the War of 1812. So there's actually a lot of history that goes back, and then back in the earlier part of the 1900s, there were farms around here in the community. When I moved here about 10 years ago, the community had mostly been concerned with elements of uh, crime, and now the, the community seems to be rallying around the development of parks and libraries and redevelopment of the Rhode Island Avenue corridor. And a lot of that is with the resurgence of, you know, some younger families moving into the area, looking at trying to develop more of a community and bringing greater amenities to service everyone. We heard from Vivian Smith in Holmes Run Acres and Michael Kiefer in Langdon. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamu-metro. blast from summer vacations of the past. It's that real personal nostalgia as well as, goodness, this ride has been in the exact same place for 100 years. It's coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU To Metro Connection, I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're dealing out one of our Wild Cards shows. So no overriding topic, no general theme, just a straight flush of stories about life in the D.C. area. From the ongoing fracking debate in Maryland to a summer camp that takes arts and crafts to a whole new digital level. Now the next issue we'll cover is prevalent in our region, to be sure, but it goes well beyond. The National Association of School Psychologists says nearly a third of middle schoolers and high schoolers are directly involved in bullying. Further, the association says far too many students regularly skip out on school so they can avoid being bullied. And that's a huge problem, says Helen Pafumi, a Northern Virginia mother of three, ages 15, 13, and 11. So I started looking at the monstrous way that kids can be to each other that we're trying so hard to combat in our schools. And I also started looking at large-scale school violence and the way that a community has to deal with that kind of terror and wondering where is the line between human and inhuman? Where is the line between a boy and a beast? Those are the questions Bafumi seeks to explore in Abominable, 
her new play at the Hub Theater, which she co-founded in Fairfax in 2008. The play deals with a boy named Sam who's going through an intense growth spurt. And as he's dealing with this, uh, he starts to get bullied by somebody who used to be his friend. (laughs) What a joke. You know, you're like a joke I see a mile away. Shut up, Jacob. Nope, not going to do it. And then while that's happening, these mysterious footprints happen around town. So something is preying on the community at the same time that this bullying thing is happening. So neither of you saw anything? No, but I think I saw something like this in the woods on the east side the other day. You did? But I can't be sure. Maybe it was a bear. You think that could be a bear? This is no bear. I really love how the magical realism looked at this really serious bully issue, took it apart, and found how humanity kind of finds each other. Kirsten Kelly is the play's director, and what she also loves is how Abominable encourages people not to jump so quickly to blame. Like, is it the school? Is it the parents? Is it the kid? We just jump to blame so much that we lose the opportunity to kind of figure out, okay, what is the disconnect here? How can we help everybody in this situation? William Vaughn portrays Jacob, the kid who goes from Sam's friend to Sam's bully. He says he hopes the play will remind audiences that all people, be it the bullied or the bullies, wrestle with their own struggles, or to use an even more apropos word, their own beasts, whether that is, you know, love or bravery or just being a teenager and going through puberty. The problem, he says, is when those beasts go from growling on the inside to howling and biting and scratching on the outside. No one just wakes up, especially a kid, and decides, you know, I'm going to be a bully today. Um, it comes from a, a place of hurt, whether because it, it makes them feel better about themselves. With these bad guys, we hope to think that they, they weren't always bad guys. So at what point did the beast outweigh the, the human? An excellent question, and one not very easy to answer, says actress Carla Briscoe, who plays Prima, the town mystic. The other thing I really love about the play, or like the parallel between what's going on with the kids and this mysterious creature that's sort of plaguing the town, is this idea of we want so desperately to define it, to understand it, so we can stop it. And yet nothing is really quite that simple ever, which is probably the truth of it. That motion is definitely seconded by playwright and hub artistic director Helen Pafumi, who says her play is less about answering questions and more about encouraging exploration. So if you're wondering whether she ties everything up with a neat little bow at the end. Oh, well, no. I need to be full disclosure there. (laughs) I wouldn't know how to tie it up with a bow. But I think that there's beauty in the fact that we're allowed to say that humanity can win, love can win, hope can win. I'm really big on those things at the hub. I really want hope to be what bubbles up at the end of the day and hopefully at the end of our shows so people walk out with that. You can see Abominable at the Hub Theater through August 3rd. For more information and to see photos from the show, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Next stop on today's Wild Cards show is the beach. 
specifically the beach in Ocean City, Maryland, where you'll find an amusement park called Trimper's Rides. Vacationers came here a century ago to ride Trimper's carousel and stroll the boardwalk. The ladies in elegant dresses, the gentlemen in dapper suits. The carousel still remains, as do other historic rides, like a mini Ferris wheel and something called the Fairy Whip. So in a town that now bustles with towering hotels and thousands of people packed on its beaches, Trimper's is a throwback to an era when Ocean City was a quieter place. So if you close your eyes and stand near the carousel, you can probably imagine a little bit what it's like. Maybe if you squint. (laughs) Monica Thrash is a Trimper's employee who just wrote a book about the Ocean City attraction and the family behind it. And Tara Boyle caught up with her right outside the merry-go-round building. This part here was actually remnants of the Eastern Shore Hotel, one of the earliest properties acquired by Daniel Trimper, the founder of the park. Let's talk about Mr. Trimper and um, his, he's, he's essential to the story of Trimper's here in Ocean City. Take us back to the 1800s when he first came here. Uh, he and his wife visited here on vacation. They were uh, lived in Baltimore, and when he came here on vacation, all there was was one or two hotels in town. There was no electricity, and it, he, but he saw something in the town, some potential there. Uh, he was um, a great entrepreneur and always looked for opportunities, and he um, came, bought the one of the hotels, and ran that for a while, and purchased the property slowly on either side of it and built it into this entertainment complex we still have today. Uh, The carousel was one of the first things that he established in terms of family entertainment, right? Can you talk a little bit about how that name came to be synonymous with entertainment here in Ocean City? He had had carousels of some sort from almost the very beginning, and um, he had done so well with them in 1912, he went ahead and made a purchase of a Herschel Spillman menagerie carousel. Um, it's a very large piece, and it is still in operation today in the exact same spot. The building built over it was built especially for it. The previous carousels had been housed just slightly to the left, about where the bumper cars are today. Tell me about how storms over the years have affected uh, the operations for the Tripper family. Originally, the property was, uh, the ocean came right up to the front. There was next to no distance between where the proper, the hotels were, essentially the early boardwalk, and the ocean. It wasn't, and storms, any kind of storm of any size would blow down the hotels along the front, and they would have to rebuild. And the hotels along there, he's re- he rebuilt them three or four times and just kept doing it. And one of the things I found I admired most about Mr. Trimper was the this tenacity, this not giving in, not giving up on Ocean City at all. One thing that really struck me when I was reading the book and looking at the photos is that this place seems very much to kind of capture a little slice of Ocean City when it was still kind of a small town and a quieter place. Uh, yes, we. one of our biggest strengths and... One of the ways that I think Trimpers is special is this slice of history and people's history. They put their kid on that ride or their mother went on that ride when they were little and it was the first, and it's that real tangible sense of nostalgia, personal nostalgia, as well as, goodness, this ride has been in the exact same place 
for you know 100 years is just really kind of neat and i think that a lot of it it's american history and i think that that's something also special in a town like ocean city that there's so many things that go on and our modern lives are getting more global it's kind of nice to have also this little slice of small town america that was monica thrash author of trimper's rides speaking with metro connections tara boyle So what could scream summer more than the beach? Well, how about camp? Only the camp we'll visit in this next story isn't so much about swimming lessons, wilderness hikes, or roasting marshmallows over a roaring fire. No, as Julie Alderman tells us, the kids at this camp spend their days a little bit differently. My summers were spent at Camp Iroquois in upstate New York, where my best friend Adriana and I would wreak havoc by getting lost on hiking trails, flipping over canoes on purpose, and painting the walls of the art cabin. This camp is not like that. Welcome to Active Learning's Game Builder Video Game Creation Camp at the National Cathedral School. In a dimly lit classroom, desks are arranged in a semicircle around a counselor. Each desk has a laptop for kids to use to create their own video games. Matthew Morales, the camp director, says the Game Builder Camp caters to a specific group of children. Not everyone is a sports player. Some kids like the video games and like computer aspects. So that's our main like group that we get here. The Game Builder Camp is small, 10 kids at most. Over the course of a week, each one of these kids, all of whom happen to be boys, create their own video game from scratch. Beginners use a program called Game Maker, which allows them to build a two-dimensional game. Think Pong or Pac-Man. Alexander Brown, who is 12 years old, is making his game on Game Builder. I programmed enemies to shoot at me, and when you get hit, you take away lives. Alexander's screen is filled with jets, some his and some his opponents. They fly all over, dodging each other's bullets. In the end, the first one to lose all their lives loses the game. The advanced group of campers uses a program called Kodu. Ten-year-old Curran Holden shows me the game he just made. One robofish fights the other robofish, but the other robofish fights the other robofish and attacks the saucer. I just use the can to blow everything up. Using Kodu, Curran created a three-dimensional wonderland in which you could play as a robofish, a hybrid of a fish and a robot, of course, or as a saucer, or even as a cannon on a mission to destroy everything. Current says the software is relatively easy to use, although I'm a little lost when he tries to explain it while furiously clicking on his screen. What you do is you basically click on the thing, you click program, and then you use certain icons to say, like, okay, when you click these buttons on the keyboard, it will move like this. Counselor Joshua Soto says while each camper makes his own game, the campers do work together and help each other. I feel like you incorporate a lot of things into your own video game, different ideas, so every game is going to be different. No game is the same. They see that one kid would have something that another kid doesn't, and I encourage them to to help each other out and to teach each other how they manage to, to add that into their game. Nine-year-old camper Luca Brown says he learned a lot from other campers and tries to incorporate that learning into his two-dimensional game. I got an idea from his, and it was that the way that the person moved and what the 
um, enemy shot was I thought was very creative. At the end of the week, the campers are so excited to show off their finished projects. They take turns swapping seats and trying to beat each other's games. Matthew Morales, the camp director, says the fun doesn't have to end when camp is over. They're super excited when their game is done. They often want to put it on different flash drives and CDs and hand it out at school and to their family members so everyone can play their game, which they are able to do, so that's pretty great for them. Many of these boys, like Curran Holden, have returned to camp year after year. Curran says he keeps coming back for one basic reason. It's just a really fun camp, and I really like it. And, I mean, this is a camp that more kids could go to and have fun at. And, yes, the campers do make it outside every day for recess, for a game of kickball or soccer. However, even when they're outside, they're still committed to the games they left upstairs. Even when we go out for recess... We're outside playing soccer or playing something in the field, and the kids are like, can we go back upstairs to the, to the video game? We want to finish our video game. So, you know, the outdoorsy stuff is not for everyone, and I think that we've kind of, like, picked up on that and trying to give kids another option. I'm Julie Alderman. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Lauren Oberk, Vita Cardoza, Jonathan Wilson, Tara Boyle, and Julie Alderman, who also produced Door to Door. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Lindsay Sperber and Julie Alderman. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We have information on all the music we use on metroconnection.org. Just click a story for information about its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection or by subscribing to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll peer behind closed doors. We'll get an inside look at life at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue with a former White House butler. We'll visit Union Station to tour some of the secret spots that travelers rarely see. And we'll find out why so many local musicians are skipping the stage and heading to homes. I think you want to see what's going on in D.C. music, you should be going to house shows. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.